1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Kristen Maneri about her book, Better Daily Mindfulness Habits, Simple Changes with Lifelong Impact. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you, Christina. So great to be here. I am so glad that you're here and that we have time together to talk about what mindfulness is. Mm. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Well,
1: I'm a mom and I have a partner that I share the parenting with and my life with. And I really probably best describe myself as a lifelong learner who also likes to teach. Really, I, I find the study of mindfulness and personal growth and just just really our experience as human beings to be absolutely fascinated, fascinating from every single angle. And so I find what I do is I love to read and learn and absorb and then integrate that into my own life and metabolize it in a way that it can make sense for other people. And so I can kind of bring other people on the ride with me. So I am just, I'm just obsessed with learning about living well. And by well, I mean like enjoying my life and being the best person I can be and uh, making a contribution and making less messes (laughs) around me and my relationships and and whatnot. So my my training though is as a mindfulness teacher. And also I'm certified as a habits coach and I've done training and life coaching and mindful self-compassion. And mindful-based um, stress release, like really just a deep dive into how we can be better friends with our minds. So,
0: so yeah, that's, that's about me. This is the Academic Life channel. So one of the things I like to ask guests is about their own experience in going to college or in engaging in learning. How did you get from A to B?
1: Mm, I love that. I love that because it gives me a chance to just reflect on that. I think that, again, just as I have gone through life and realizing how much I love to learn, when I look back at the choices that I've made in terms of where I went to school and what did I what I ended up studying, it has been. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard Elizabeth Gilbert talk about the difference between the hummingbird and the jackhammer, but I'm not a jackhammer. Like I'm not going to take one school of study and just do that as far down as I can possibly go. I want to explore. I want to, um, like a hummingbird does. It's like they're a little bit over there, and then they're a little bit over there, and and it and I. It's not that I don't ever do a deep dive. I did end up getting my degree in communications and English and then I've gone on to do other schooling. But it's always been to me about the love of learning. So I remember back when I did my university degree, I, I would have like a class in Spanish and then I had a class in women's studies and then in media studies and then I remember I took natural History at one point and I don't know why I did this, but I took an accounting course. that was a mistake. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, it really, to me, the point of learning is that it's just intrinsically valuable. It doesn't always have to be for something. I learn because I, I just absolutely love to learn. And I put that in there because I think that those of us who align with that, that, that really feel like, oh yeah, I, I learn because I love learning well we live in a culture where it's supposed to be for something where someone's going to say to you well, well what are you going to do with that like what are you going to do with that degree or that that certification or okay you're going away to this retreat but what how are you going to make a living out of that and we have to make a living of course we have to pay our bills and i think we all need to figure out a thing we can do that produces income but we could also keep learning just for learning's sake and so when I look back at my history of learning, it, it has been that. It has been learning for
0: learning's sake. You mentioned certifications that you've gotten. What led you to mindfulness? When do you remember first being introduced to this idea?
1: Hmm. Well, I think that in my own curiosity about just personal development in general. I can think as far back as 20 years ago, reading books that that said if there were books about happiness or about success or about, you know, just in general, how to be better at our lives. It was very common for those books somewhere to mention that I should be meditating. And it was just not something that I could do. I would try to meditate. You can't, Christina, you can't see my air quotes, but I put them around try. (laughs) I would try to meditate and it was just like, yeah, I can't do this. My mind's too busy. And so I think that for, for a lot of people that I know of who set out on a path of personal development or self-help or however you want to phrase that, at some point someone's going to recommend that you meditate. And until you really start to unpack what it means to meditate, what mindfulness means, then it just feels like another thing that you should be doing that maybe you're not very good at. And the truth is that none of us are good at meditation when we first start to do it because we think that we're supposed to be making our mind stop thinking, and that's such an impossible feat. And so I think for me, once I started really far down that path and realizing, wow, all roads lead back to mindfulness, my ability to monitor myself, my ability to um, have insight, to reflect on the living of my life, to get quiet, to get still – all roads lead back to that, no matter what it is that I want to get up to in my life, whether I want to be more successful in my career or have you know enjoy my marriage more or feel like I'm a better parent or take care of my body or my mind more. It all seems to lead back to this idea that when we bring more awareness and intention and deliberateness to the living of our lives, which is what mindfulness is to me, then that is what has us see the most progression or the most growth. So I think it really was an organic evolution for me of realizing, ah, most of what needs to change in my life is inside of my head, my thoughts, my approach, my belief system, things like that. And when that changes, everything on the outside starts to change.
0: So you've mentioned two things that are important to you. One is mindfulness and one is meditation. For Mm -hmm. listeners who are drawn to this topic and may not be clear about the nuances of the difference between the two. Could you just briefly define for us what is mindfulness and what is meditation?
1: Yeah. So meditation is just a tool of mindfulness, and there's a ton of them. In fact, the exciting thing about writing the book, Better Daily Mindfulness Habits, was being able to put down in paper dozens of other things that one could do to become more mindful aside from meditation there's no there is actually nothing in this book about about meditation in terms of how to do it or a practice of doing it it's all other mindfulness practices so when we would approach uh, mindfulness with this idea of this misguided idea that the only way is to is to meditate and then we go to meditate and it's hard or clunky or it just doesn't seem to work then we might, assume that either mindfulness is inaccessible to us or we're just, you know, not good at mindfulness or we're just not wired for mindfulness but you know meditation is just a thing we do to practice mindfulness you sit down in a deliberate way like a, this I'm going to sit down for these 10 minutes in this specific place and I'm going to practice not only monitoring my thoughts and noticing my thoughts but actually steering them so maybe I'll say, uh, you know, on the in-breath, I'm going to say peace. And on the out-breath, I'm going to say ease or something like that. And, and of course, I'm, I'm only going to be able to do that so many times before I notice, oh, I forgot saying peace and ease or my breath, I have stopped focusing on my breath. My mind went somewhere else. And I, it's just a matter of literally picking my mind up and putting it back at the task at hand. No, we're doing this now. We're, we're repeating this mantra or we're following the breath or we're... We're counting or whatever sort of um, practice that we're using for our meditation. So it's just one way that we practice mindfulness, which is our ability to actually be present for what's happening inside and outside of our lives, inside of
0: our minds and all around us. You mentioned that people can get frustrated and say, I'm just not wired for this. But the premise of the book is that our brains get wired through habits, Can you talk to us about how the habits are what are making the pathways and and are making us uh, live a certain way?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it's really, really important that we as human beings recognize that we're not wired for mindfulness, that we're actually wired for automation and for um, to live actually very unconsciously. And the reason for that is that when we... When, we, when we're mindful, when we're bringing ourselves very intentionally and deliberately into the present, it takes a lot of effort to pay attention and to, you know, imagine washing the dishes and being very attentive to the smell of the soap and the feel of the water of our hands and the, the sound of the suds or the water. Like, it takes a lot of our resources to bring that much attention to what it, whatever it is that we're doing. And so our mind, which is all our bodies, which is always trying to divvy up resources where it is best needed, automates much of our behavior because then we don't need as much energy and attention and intention in order to do that behavior. So I I put that in there because I think we think there's something wrong with us when we go to meditate and we struggle with that, but that is universal. What our mind likes to do is wander. What it, what it likes to do is to put things into sort of automation mode so that we don't have to pay so close attention. A perfect example of that is driving. You know, when we move to a new place and we go to go to the grocery store, we pay very close attention on the way to the grocery store, how we get there. We're very aware of our surroundings and our, our mind is almost mapping our environment so that it can automate eventually it can automate that route for us and then you know a couple of weeks later we can arrive at the grocery store and think oh my gosh I didn't even I wasn't even aware and that's because your automated mind took over it did what it's supposed to do moving resources around no longer needing them for that drive because you have now mapped it and your mind knows where it's going um, so that it can move those resources to something else and so I think for us to notice that that is a a very natural, biological, physiological function that is universal. Everyone feels like that. And when I, you know, it's important for me to, to teach that and for people to really grasp that because then they understand, oh, well, that's why my mind wanders. That's why I forget to be mindful. That's why I kind of lose myself in my life. It's, it's what you were designed to do. So habits, you know, kind of in a paradoxical way, we can use the power of the automated mind to create little portals of mindfulness. And an example of that would be you could create the habit that every time you got into your car, before you turned it on or before you put it into drive, you just stopped for 15 seconds and just did a bit of a body scan. Like just sort of a check-in. How am I feeling? How am I doing? What am I thinking about? What am I like how's my body doing? Am I holding any stress anywhere? Like just a quick sort of like triage of like what is going on with me. So I'm already getting into the car and very automatically turning the key and putting it into drive. What I do is I adhere a new habit on top of that that I automate that has me just automatically stop and take a 30-second pause before I start driving. And in that, I find a little doorway to mindfulness, a moment that I can actually come back to the living of my life with some awareness and with some consciousness.
0: And that's the underpinning of the book. You say in, in the introduction, you can leverage the power of the automated mind to create habits and rituals that flood your life with presence, compassion, and insight. Mm -hmm. And you also say the automated mind will always switch back on. However, you can integrate the science of habits with daily mindfulness. And that was an example that you just illustrated with. You can sit for a few seconds and get grounded in yourself before you start driving your car. And the entire book takes us through how we can put habits of mindfulness throughout our day and really as you said choose the ones that work for us not everybody is going to want to sit still and meditate but we can be mindful in a variety of ways throughout our day and start to build those as our ingrained habits
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah and i think honestly meditation should be like way later <laughs> like but unfortunately it's it's kind of like what's served up is like oh you want more mindfulness then you should be meditating but the truth is, like if you were to spend the next couple of months just cultivating the habit of creating some mindful pauses in, in very specific times in your life and adhering them to things that you're already doing on a regular basis, like starting your car or feeding your cat or... Um, making your morning coffee or going to the bathroom, like we already do a lot of things over and over and over and over again. If we if we were to do an inventory or an audit of our lives, we can see that actually much of our lives is steeped in habit. We do the same things over and over, often in the same place and in the same way and at the same time over and over. So the the concept of the book is like, okay, so I'm already doing that. I already can count on the fact that around nine o'clock every night, I'm going to be brushing my teeth. Well, what if I used that as an opportunity to have a mindful moment, you know, rather than wandering around and like doing a pickup and getting my clothes ready for the next day and I don't know, just sort of busying around. What if I just sat for that two minutes and brushed my teeth and actually like had a mindful moment with myself? So we, we can see that I don't have to start a brand new routine of meditation. In fact, I may be so unfamiliar with stillness and uh, so unacquainted with my inner world, that that would even be very jarring to just try to sit for 5 or 10 or, God knows, 20, 30 minutes, which some people attend. Why not start with these little, a minute here, 30 seconds there, 2 minutes here, and then, maybe after a few months, say, you know what? I really like that. Like, I really like this. I'm getting, I'm getting familiar. I'm getting comfortable with being with myself and having these little moments of stillness. Maybe I'll, I'll sit down and do like a five minute um, guided meditation, or I'll, I'll listen to some, you know, nice spa music for five minutes and see how that goes. But it, it's not normally like that. I think people try to deepen, jump into the deep end of the pool first, without either knowing how to swim or even feeling whether it is that they like <laughs> to swim. So I think it's important to, to take some baby steps. And these little teeny habits that I've integrated into the book are a really great way to do that.
0: And as we try to figure out how we can be mindful, you, you let us know things that are getting in, in the way of that, that we have some bad habits. And so you give us tips for what to do to work on our bad habits but you also ask us to be attentive to things that we're doing that are the opposite of mindfulness, like multitasking, um, not monitoring our tech use, um, not having uh, rituals that, that end our day, not having clear markers of transition. Perhaps we want to put reminders in our phone to say, hey, take a, take a five-minute pause at this time during the day. And we're also not being mindful of our own breathing, that the way we mm. breathe can actually be triggering some of the anxiety systems in the brain to say, oh, no, you're in a dangerous spot. And, and if we get into a deeper longer breath, we can tell the brain and the body that, no, we're, we're, we're okay. We're in a place of safety. Can you talk mm. about some of these ways that we're living unconsciously in a bad habit? And if we can shift those, we can start to have some of the building blocks of mindfulness going on in our day.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember in my mindfulness training a couple of years ago, learning about kind of the seesaw effect of our parasympathetic and our sympathetic nervous system, and that um, when we experience a lot of anxiety, it's helpful for me to frame it like we've, we've just kind of gotten stuck into a gear, you know, it's like when we're learning to drive and, um, you know, stick shift, which is something I never actually learned to do, but I've seen people learn and, and like you go to shift gears and it's just stuck. Like you didn't, it didn't, you know, you didn't quite land it in the right slot. And I look at anxiety as being, uh, very similar to that in that we can just get stuck in a gear of fretting and uh, just constricting and, and feeling overwhelmed and kind of letting thoughts of overwhelm kind of run rampant. And so what I learned about the, the, the sort of that back and play, back and forth play between the sympathetic nervous system, which is our, our go mode, what some people would call like our fight or flight mode, but we're not always in fight or flight. I mean, we're just, we're, we're ready for action. And then the parasympathetic nervous system, which is more about our our sort of rest and digest, it's our slow mode. That 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 parasympathetic um, system actually gets activated by our out breath. I thought was just mind blowing to me. And so for me, learning that it, one way to almost like within minutes, even seconds, start to Literally change my physiological state just by extending my out breath, just by maybe doing a sort of a box breathing technique, and and being sure that my out breath is maybe two or three seconds longer than my in breath. Something that simple, which is interestingly something Navy Seals do to regulate their nervous system, It, it. it's so accessible. Like you don't have to go get any specialized training or pay some money to get some sort of certification. Like anybody at any time can start doing the practice of a longer out-breath when they need to get re-regulated and will start to feel the benefit of that within within minutes, if not moments. So I think that, um, We don't even have to understand the science of some of the things that we can do to re-regulate ourselves, and yet we have such a felt sense of them working.
0: You invite us to greet our behavior with curiosity and the behavior of others with curiosity, that if we approach everything with curiosity, kindness, openness, and acceptance, it's as though we are researchers out collecting data about our lives as we live it. How can we apply that mindset to things that really stress us out, like doing our work or figuring out how to manage stress?
1: When we start to approach our life like like a scientist, like a researcher who, who is just sort of curiously sort of standing by with, you know, like a lab coat and like maybe a clipboard that they're taking notes on, then when we respond to life in a way, or when, when life responds to us in a way that maybe is counter to what we would want or what we were expecting. And, and we feel something, maybe it's stress, maybe it's frustration, maybe it's disappointment, bringing in that, that, that mode of like a curious researcher and, and being able to go, Oh, wow, isn't that interesting? Like I'm really triggered by this person or I'm, feeling really confronted right now by what they said or i'm feeling really overwhelmed by that request or this project that i'm working on or this dinner that i'm making and then being able to start to look at it like okay so what are what's going on here like let's get some more data you know here i am in the kitchen and i'm making dinner and i've been here before but today i'm really stressed like i'm feeling like I'm moving really quickly and I have kind of an irritated look on my face is being able to go like, okay, what, what is, what's some more data I can collect about this moment? Oh, I'm tired. Like, I didn't get a good night's sleep last night. I'm agitated. Like, my body is starting to drive me towards going and getting some rest and I've been ignoring it. So I'm agitated from that. Or maybe, oh, I've got something on my mind. Like, I'm worried about this thing tomorrow. Or like, oh, I shouldn't have had that coffee at four o'clock. Like I'm kind of hopped up on caffeine right now. But that ability to say, oh, like what's going on here with like a real sense of curiosity and interest that it's not just like someone said something and it's annoying me. That maybe there's a whole other level, like layers of the context that if I could tune into that would inform me more about uh, what to do next, how to relate to what's happening. And so using that dinner um, analogy or that, that example, with that data that I've now collected, oh, like I've had too much coffee. I'm over caffeinated. I'm overstimulated. It's like, okay, what do I need to do right now? Like, you know what? I'm going to go stop cooking. I'm going to go sit down and I'm going to have a great big glass of water. And I'm just going to breathe and I'm just going to try to calm myself or I'm going to go eat a piece of cheese to get some fat moving in my system or something like that. But we we gain access to our discerning self when we have more data and we're not just reacting to everything that's happening either inside or around us.
0: You invite us to look at things clearly, but also with a gentle and nurturing lens. And that's really important because part of the book, you're inviting us to explore bad habits and people can kind of start judging themselves or getting tense when we even bring up the idea that we all have bad habits. Um, And you take us through the science of them, why we have them, that the brain doesn't actually have a moral compass regarding habits. It has habits, the habits that work. Um, And it doesn't judge them as good or bad. In fact, a bad habit may give us a positive reward in that it alleviates boredom or stress, and that activates the reward system. So when you're t- talking to us in the book about um, how we handle uh, bad habits mindfully, can you also talk to us about what you found about uh, willpower as a fickle friend? Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, so I had done a training with BJ Fogg, who wrote Tiny Habits, um, at the beginning of last year and did his um, habit certification. and he's, he's the author of Tiny Habits, but he's also a behavioral science researcher at Stanford University, and he's worked with tens of thousands of, of different people about habits. And, and what he concluded is that when we try to change our behavior using willpower, um, we're gonna run into some issues because willpower is finite. Um, it's based on how much energy we have because willpower takes energy we're literally using our will um, to to cultivate a power to either get us to do something or to not do something and so approaching behavior change from the standpoint of eliminating the need for willpower like People would look at my life and say, wow, how do you get up so early? How do you have your morning routine the way that it is? How do you, you know, exercise as much as you do, you know, yada, yada, yada? They, they might look at that you know, on paper and say, wow, she must have a lot of willpower or self-discipline. But the truth is I don't, I'm not a very self-disciplined person. If you were to put a, a little bowl of jujubes next to me on my desk and I knew that I shouldn't eat those, but they were right there. I, I, would, I would eat them, even if my mind was saying, don't eat them. And so what I've learned to do is to organize my life in a way so that I don't really need to use all that much willpower. In fact, my goal is to try to integrate behaviors that require no willpower. Because here's the trouble with willpower. If you're tired, if you're busy, if you forget, if you... Um, just haven't resourced yourself. Like maybe you're hungry. Um, if something better comes along, like all sorts of curveballs are going to throw our way, that will get us. That will that will make it difficult for us to do what it is that we want to do. When we can use the power of habits and really start to look like a researcher with compassion, that say, "Hey, I'm not a lazy person. I just haven't figured out the right way." To integrate regular movement into my day or um, going for a walk after dinner or whatever it is when we say you know what I, I can't count on willpower because it's going to come and go what else can I do to start to integrate a behavior in my life well then all kinds of things open up you know I can I can use habit I can use ritual I can time block it I can create accountability you know that, that's something that many people do. They realize, oh, I'm never going to go for a walk by myself. I, I'll always find a reason not to go. But if I make a date with my neighbor four doors down and say, hey, I'll meet you on the corner every night at 7 and we'll do a walk around the block, well, guess what? Now all of a sudden I go. Well, there's you not using willpower. You use something else. You use companionship or accountability or you know a social pact in order to get the job done. So I think that realizing that our attempts to build behaviors based on willpower are likely going to fall short and we're going to make that mean that there's something bad about ourselves, but there's just not, it's, it's just you use the wrong technique in order to, to to build that behavior. And there's so many more out there when we take willpower off the table.
0: And you tell us in the book that the good habits are the opposite of the fickle friend of willpower, because when the good habits create results we show ourselves that we can trust ourselves, we can rely on ourselves, and that builds self confidence. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think one of the reasons why I fell in love with BJ Fogg's approach is that it's rooted in this idea that if we constantly try to onboard new behavior, you know, things that we think that we should be doing, and we constantly fall short because we were trying to build this new behavior based on willpower or based on self-motivation. Uh, we're going to start to have a, a sort of a characterization of ourselves that we can't be relied upon, that we're lazy or you know flaky or like whatever it is. we're, we're going to start to make up uh, a description of ourselves to ourselves that, that we're, we can't follow through, that we cannot be relied on. And yet all it takes is starting with tiny habits, just small little changes that we integrate slowly, we build on slowly, we plant carefully, and we can start to rewire that characterization. We can say, hey, wow, look at that. I did I did get up five days in a row, you know, two minutes earlier than I usually do. Or I did remember to take my vitamins. It, it was just a matter of... I putting them in a different place. so I remember to take them or scheduling that thing at a better time so that it actually worked in my life. these little wins, these little successes start to have us reframe how we see ourselves and then and then that's when the momentum comes in. You know, James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits, says that real change happens at the level of identity. when we start to see ourselves as someone who eats well, someone who, Um, is fit or who finishes their work every day, like whatever it is, when we start to see, oh, I am this character, I am this identity of someone who, you know, fill in the blank, then it has that ripple effect of bringing in all kinds of behavior. You know, then we say no to things that don't align with that identity. And we start to say yes to things that do align with that identity. And, and that creates even more momentum.
0: And you give us tools throughout the book to sort of make that shift in how we see ourselves by reminding us again and again to be gentle, to take small steps, to not try to make an enormous change. And you also tell us early on that mindfulness is a flashlight that illuminates your experience. And once we start to see it that way, you let us know that it's a portal through which you reconnect with yourself and see who you truly are underneath all the societal conditioning. And I think that idea of getting to know ourselves outside of the societal conditioning really frees us from those negative labels, but also gives us permission to try new changes. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: we're always a work in progress. And I know we hear that probably so many times that we stop really hearing what that expression is saying. And that is that we are always creating ourselves. Like we are, we are a influx at all times. We are learning and changing and our brain through neuroplasticity is constantly learning and rewiring itself. And when we start to see that, like, I'm not a fixed thing, I'm not this finished product that like, I should be this way all the time. And we start to see like, oh, yeah, I, I'm supposed to be changing and adapting and tweaking and pivoting and learning, That that's actually at a physiological level, like how my brain is designed. I feel like that just brings more space and grace to our lives. There's that great book by Carol Dweck called Mindset. It talked about the difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. You know, fixed mindset might say, you know, I'm not flexible. Like, that's just someone who's decided, like, I can't do yoga or Pilates like or whatever. I'm just not a flexible person. Whereas someone with a growth mindset would say, I'm not flexible yet. And in in that three little letters, yet, opens up so much possibility and opportunity. I, I could decide that I'm just going to do one stretch every night before bed, or I'm going to do one stretch every morning when I get up, or when I get up from a call, I'm just going to do one stretch. So there's yet this idea that I might not be this way right now, but I have the potential to be any way that I want to be. I have, there's possibility, there's opportunity, but but having a fixed mindset cuts us off from even seeing what's possible.
0: And that, Brings us to early in the book when you say for a mindfulness mindset, we're going to need three things. One is intention, one is attention, and one is attitude. And this growth mindset, this idea that we are a work in progress is part of of incorporating intention, attention, and attitude. And you also remind us that mindfulness is a place to visit rather than a state that we're trying to achieve which for me was really helpful because as someone who tries to um, have a meditation practice, like everyone, my life is a blobby thing. (laughs) And I can't always keep the appointment that I've put in my calendar to be at that meditation class. And if I miss a few over a few days, I start to feel like, oh, I'm really out of my habit but my habit is a is a work in progress, and mindfulness is a place that I visit, not a state I have to constantly be in, and when I remind myself of that, I can just get myself right back to the next available meditation class this week. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's a real paradox when we start to develop ourselves, especially if we have an aim to bring more compassion and acceptance and just grace to ourselves. And that is that when we go to, to do something, whether it's starting a yoga practice or a meditation practice, or just a walk around the block practice, we, we sort of latch onto the idea that there's only one there's only one success. And that is if I do it all the time, never miss it. And I remember just a few years ago, listening to Elizabeth Gilbert, she was getting interviewed by Oprah Winfrey and Oprah asked her after her Eat Pray Love book, "Do you still meditate every day?" And I, I always just loved her response. She was she said, "No," and the reason why is because she realized that it became another thing that she was sort of fl- self-flagellating herself for, like another thing that she wasn't doing right or enough or you know well. And she just thought, that doesn't work for me. Like This this mindfulness is supposed to be about cultivating a more higher version of myself, one that doesn't judge myself and criticize myself. And now I'm, I'm adding a lot more to it. She didn't actually say all that. But what I took from it is we have to be careful when we're starting our practices and our habits. And, and in your case, going to a mindfulness class or a meditation class, is that we don't make it another thing that we're... Kind of hustling about. You know, it's another thing, another obligation. We've got to bring this sort of spirit or this attitude of just grace and um, self love and acceptance so that it, it doesn't become something else that we're like, oh, something else that I don't do well enough or good enough. And I think that's really important. Self improvement can feel like perfectionism and self-criticism and self-judgment if we don't add that self-love piece, that sort of higher wisdom that says, yeah, I matter. And today I'm making a different choice. I'm not going to do that. I'm, maybe I'll do something instead. I'll do some box breathing when I get home or, or whatever it is. Or maybe I'm just going to skip it today and that's okay too. It's like having an attitude of like, good enough is good enough and knowing that that comes from a really deep place of self-love.
0: And You say in the book that mindfulness really encourages us to create white space, to create gaps, to create time to pause. So if we do miss something on our list that we feel is making us more mindful or making us um, healthier, actually, if we're using that time to pause or to do nothing or to breathe, or to have white space, we're actually meeting our goal of trying to be a more mindful person and we're being kinder to our mind. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, it really, we don't, in our busy, busy, busy lives, we, we don't necessarily have an infrastructure that sets us up for success in terms of the mindfulness, um, an aim to be more mindful. We, you know, we have our meetings back to back to back, right? Like they're edged right up against each other. Or we see, oh, I got 15 minutes extra between the time where I've got to drop this kid off and pick up this kid. Maybe I'll run into the grocery store. And so we were, if we're not careful, our goal of like a successful day is that I got, I got, you know, X amount done. It's all about this doing, 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 doing. But if we were to reframe that or just sort of change our perspective a little bit and see that when I create little gaps between things, you know, meetings that aren't right on top of each other, you know, lunch that I'm going to eat in the car on my way to my next thing, when I can create spaces of just, you know, white space of just nothing, which is, you know like kind of unheard of (laughs) these days. Like, what do you mean you have nothing to do for the next 15 minutes? We actually have that portal that we talked about. Like, it's like, oh, now I have this homecoming. Like I can actually come back to myself. And that's when I can start having access to my more mindful self. I can get out of that, that state of just like focus and getting work done and go, 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 go and come back and take a breath and go, oh yes. Now I remember what this is for. Like, now I remember what I'm actually up to today. I'm actually up to making a contribution and having compassion and for myself and for other people. And I, I come back to my intention for the day rather than getting lost in all of the doing and completing and achieving.
0: I want to make sure that we give listeners one tip they can take away because they'll have to order the book or buy the book. And we want to give them something they can get started on now. And one of the ones that really resonated with me, um, was the notion of trading up. And you cover it on uh, page 86. You ask us to sit down and listen to our thoughts, and then you invite us to use a practice called trading up. Can you talk to us about that, please?
1: Yeah, for sure. It's so funny because I actually have a call with um, my friend Kim tomorrow who, who, who taught me that, that practice. And the idea is that if we have a thought, um, this isn't going to work out, or um, I'm not going to get the job, or you know, whatever it whatever it is, it's a it's a thought that creates a sense of sort of self defeat or maybe self judgment, or it's just not making us feel good. It's a very negative thought. The idea of trading up is looking for what's one more thought up the ladder. Like if we were just to go up one rung that would start to have me not only shift the way that I'm feeling, but actually maybe have access to a new possibility. So let's go with the example of the thought, I'm not going to get the job. The next thought could be, well, someone's going to get the job. And that might just be an opportunity for me to just notice like, not getting the job is a universal experience because there's only so many jobs to go around when 30 people apply to one, 29 people aren't going to get it. And so being able to just have that as a touchstone for a moment, like, yes, I might not get this job, but someone else will for sure. And I'm happy for them. That could be like the next trade up, or it could be, well, maybe I will get this job or then the next job will be the right one for me. Or it could be, then this isn't the right job for me, or it could be, but I did try my best. Like something that is just an upgrade from almost like a dead end thought. It's not, it's not producing anything. It's not, uh, it's it's making you feel like you're kind of at a dead end. It's like, how do I find one thought that is the next rung up from that? And it's not like you're gonna be Pollyanna about it and think, of course I'm gonna get this job. I'm amazing. And that's great to think that, but your mind isn't going to believe it. So it's like finding that next believable thought that has you start to transition from that kind of dead-end place of pessimism and that fixed mindset that, that I was just talking about a few moments ago.
0: What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Oh, I
1: love that question. I think what I hope to spark in all of my interactions is... Just a sense of ease around our growth. You know, we 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 do have this one wild life, as as Mary Oliver says, and I feel like we can get give ourselves a lot to do and a lot of pressure to just get this right. And what I want people to know more than anything is that that they really matter and that whatever their version of how they're going to approach creating a more mindful life whatever their approach is if it's teeny tiny or if it feels like a grand you know gesture it all matters like it all counts and we should be really approaching our lives with a with a good enough mentality and that doesn't mean that we don't challenge ourselves or that we don't try or put effort in but it's just this sort of spirit of I'm really okay with myself. And so whatever it takes to get to that place, but how much you know introspection or just work in the, in, the, in the world of self-love, to get to this space of just enoughness and okayness is something that really resonates for me and really really matters to me.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show today, Kristen Manieri, and telling us about your book, better daily mindfulness habits, simple changes with a lifelong impact. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on NewBooks Network. I hope you will please join us again.